Welcome back to The Last Thing I Saw. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm an editor and a writer. For my latest conversation, I spoke with a critic who I would usually chat with at film festivals, comparing notes on new movies. Justin Chang is a staff critic at the Los Angeles Times, and before that, chief film critic at Variety. Obviously, we're not going to film festivals right now, so it was a pleasure to catch up with Justin virtually and share what we've been watching and hear his thoughts on a changing film world. Among the movies we discussed were Bunuel's unsettling 1961 film Viridiana and the question of shock and scandal in movies generally, a new release, The Painted Bird, about a boy facing the horrors of World War II, with reference to two extraordinary movies, Come and See and Satan Tango. And finally, for a change of pace, the comedy Clueless, and another new release, the horror movie Relic. Let's go to the conversation. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. My name is Nick Rapold, and this is a podcast about movies, basically just talking with friends and colleagues in the industry about the movies we've been watching. Simple as that. Uh, I think at this time, I don't like to be any more demanding than asking you about what you've already watched. Um, so that's the general game plan here. And for this episode, I'm very happy to be podcasting again after a bit of a break. Um, and that is the one and only Justin Chang of the Los Angeles Times. Justin, welcome. Thank you, Nick. It's good to hear your voice again. <laughs> good to hear yours too. Yeah, It's a lot unusual since I think Usually we're, we're we're podcasting like on a, on a tiny table, uh, uh, you know, in some crowded room at can or stairwell or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Yes. Or or in the lobby of the Scotia Bank or in yes. the you know or that night we had that really nice one at Venice where it was outdoors and it was sunny and it was nice. Um, and of course, as I as we say this, it's like people think this is are just day to day, you know, um, when it, of <laughs> course right. it's just every once in a while, but yeah, this is, this is actually more faithful, I think to, to absolutely to the day to day life, yeah. which is, you know, cr- kind of cramped at home trying to get 10 things done. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, speaking of, of, of deadlines and, and all the, you know, uh, professional, uh, usual professional scheduling that goes with being, uh, you know, a weekly critic, uh, that's often something that seems to be quite different now. You know, we don't have yeah. movies coming out uh, in the same way, in the same regular, with the same predictability. If they do come out, um, you know, and we've we talked a bit um, with, with some, some some other critics about the different, you know, how it makes one think differently about what a theatrical mm-hmm. release is. But I'm kind of curious to hear from you how it's just different for you as, as a, as a weekly critic, when you, you have vastly fewer movies coming out, maybe some of them are VOD. I mean, how do you weigh all this? Just what's it been like? Yeah. And looking back at these, I guess it's been four or five months now. I lose track of exactly how many, um, the process has sort of evolved and, you know, every critic is having to adapt to it in a different way. I feel like I've had an easier time of adapting just because there are still movies. Um, they are not, you know, of course, I'm not going to theaters uh, to review them and no one should be doing that right now. But um, 
there are films that I saw at, at festivals last year that just were released on streaming platforms recently, like The Painted Bird, for example, which we were just talking about. Um, so it's almost like there's this <laughs> the festival backlog, as it were, yeah. of titles that are now sort of trickling out um, and not getting the theatrical releases that they deserve, but they're still there. And I feel, if anything, just as much, maybe even more of an obligation to flag those movies. Um, I've been, you know, maybe, yeah, reviewing a few more Netflix titles than I might have at this time. Uh, And it's also a weird uh, convergence of circumstances because my longtime colleague, Kenny Turan, who was the LA Times film critic for uh, like 30 years, uh, retired in April just as things were right. going pretty nuts. So, and it was sort of like both the, both the best thing and the worst thing. I mean, I miss Kenny so much. And I recently called him and said, come back, Kenny, I miss you. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it's like as movies are kind of thinning out, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, there's is there a need for two staff critics under most circumstances, normal circumstances, of course, I think, absolutely, but um, for, for the LA Times. But uh, so it's feeling very unmoored, a little rudderless, as, as we all are, but... Uh, the the release schedule of course is totally in flux all the time and you learn to like you get an email from a publicist now and saying and this will be in theaters uh you know in the july 31st or whatever and you just kind of right. snort snort and put that to the side and um so like that's not gonna happen the other thing in all this is that um you know like all other la times employees right now i am on a furlough one day per week um, so, you know, which is, was a very necessary measure to avoid layoffs, uh, because the paper, like all outlets is really struggling right now due to lack of advertising. So, so that's fun, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, and, and it's as, I don't know if this is the way it is with you, Nick, I find that the more free time technically I have, or the less work time I have, the more work I feel like I actually end up doing. Um, it's yeah. like, like preparing to go on vacation it's is so much more arduous than it's, it's like i'd rather just not go on vacation you know that kind of thing um so yeah. that's a, just our workaholism kind of in action but yeah for sure yeah <laughs> and, and and just you know being a kind of loose ends and and, and you know uh, yeah. about what what to do with the, the free time that you do have um mm-hmm. and coming up with bizarre s- structured viewing plans to, to that end up filling up a day uh, these strange little rabbit holes going going oh, off have, have you have you like done the thing where you like pick a particular director or something like that? Or I guess that obviously happens in the course of uh, you know researching articles anyway. But for sure. But I feel like yeah, maybe maybe you're right. I mean, even more so now. And it's like you know, I'm like as I'm scrolling through Criterion Channel, for example. It's like yeah. and you just. I remember I think listening to your talk with um, with Amy Talbin and Michael Koreski a few weeks back, and just talking about just. I think we're all feeling facing this, the just inundated and not knowing where to begin and too much choice being <laughs> not the best thing. And yeah. so sometimes it's a relief to look at, Oh, we, you know, the platform has curated this for you and watch, you know, catch us. Oh, that's, that's great. You know, of course there are things that for assignments, uh, specific assignments, I will, you know, have some purpose in what I'm watching, but otherwise it's just like, sure. I'll, check that out um yeah and yeah. yeah and it's just i feel like viewing habits are just so fragmentary now i mean they were already you know just that's just the nature of 
of how it is, but when all you can do is stream and you're stuck at home and, um, and in my case, you know, having my lovely wife and lovely child, uh, home 24 seven with me, it's like, which is both great. It's just great for family bonding and for, you know, just, and being safe and healthy and, and hopefully staying that way. But, um, but it's just murder on work and sometimes on viewing and, you know, and I try, it's funny. I try to watch, uh, I try to watch movies when I movies that I can watch with my daughter sometimes and just, you know, try to, we try to, you know, build in entertainment and pleasure into just the normal routine, but it's not easy when I'm watching things that are not just on Disney plus or whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I thought, I thought that when, you know, Studio Ghibli on yeah. HBO Max, I thought that was a, uh, that was a smart, <laughs> a very smart buy. And it's funny, we did my, um, I don't have HBO Max, but I actually, before, like it's, it feels like an eternity ago now, but several months ago, um, I did show my daughter Totoro for the first time and oh, she loved it. She's, you know, she shows encouraging signs of being a budding cinephile herself someday. <laughs> so, you know, not to, for, not to force it, but, um, but at the same time, it's kind of, it is kind of ideal for our circumstances at present. So um, I just want to ask one question about the, just about new releases, especially since a lot of people are, are, are you know, in, in similar positions um, with being kind of overwhelmed has that changed how you approach things just, you know, from like an editorial mindset? Like you, you, no. you mentioned about feeling like you, you wanted to highlight films, um, maybe mm-hmm. that had been in festivals, give a little more, um, make a little effort to make sure those don't fall through the cracks. But I mean, how does it change the way you, you think about what the movie landscape looks to the average, just like moviegoer? It's hard for things to make a splash or an impact in, in yeah. the same way. It really is. And I'll be honest, I don't know that I had the greatest sense of what the average moviegoers, what their screen looked like, um, mm. just go even before the pandemic. So I always feel sometimes, and maybe a lot of critics can relate, that you're just hurling these little missiles into the void <laughs> with every review. And that feels even more the case now. Because sometimes when you're doing that, you can feel, quote unquote, out of touch. I mean, I know it's sort of our, our job as critics to be out of touch in, in, in positive ways. But, you know, now I take more care to think, OK, where can people find this? Um, you know, and it's funny, publicists, of course, get a lot more under quite understandably a lot more um, particular about, oh, can you please mention that it's also on this server in the this service and that service, but only on Fridays. And so it's like, it's like, it's this weird, it's this weird, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but it's this total like menu of options that you could spend, just be a full-time job, even just keeping up with that. So, but I do think that a lot of the movies that are going to VOD now tend to be, you know, yeah, independent movies and international movies, um, you know, things that would have been lumped under art house theaters, you know, back before all this. And so those are the ones that I think, are not still clinging to this idea of a, you know, a theatrical release. And so they're, you know, maybe not happy to be putting it um, just out there on, on a platform or something, but they, you know, what are they going to do? Right. So it's, it's good to take the opportunity to write about those and let people know that they exist. And, um, and yeah, and I recently wrote this piece, uh, which sort of, I think, touches on what we're talking about, um, which is the the difficulty and the challenge of watching certain movies, um, you know, 
whether you call them, you know, whether you call it slow cinema, which I know is a term that's uh, I don't care for and I know it's fallen out of favor, but, you know, kind of hardcore art films that, um, and we've seen some of them that opened this, some of them opened this year. Some of them were, you know, kind of nipped in the bud because of the pandemic, but movies that really do require a theater and that I'm glad to have seen at festivals. And so now, mm-hmm. As I'm recommending, you know, these, like when I reviewed uh, Pedro Costa's new film, uh, Vitalina Varela, I kind of took more of a, maybe a controlling hand and kind of urge viewers to say like, you know, turn off the lights, you know, let this, you know, it's going to be, you know, like more of a handholding take than I usually do, just because I feel, you know, you want to approach the reader and you know that this is, you know, many of whom probably have never seen a Costa film before. And so you want to prepare them for that a a little bit and but i wrote this longer piece which was not a review but just touching on that movie and others and how i feel like this really is one of the great casualties of all this it's like you know we we hear so much about you know the latest just this morning you know the latest news about tenet the endless drama about tenet and i i love christopher nolan but i am so tired of this movie already and just the degree to which it is just sucking up all the oxygen out of kind of a movie scape that is already really starved for oxygen so um and it's like but what about you know what about the movies that are not going to play so easily on you know on your home on your home TV or something. I mean, you, we heard about this, like, you know, when, you know, just a couple years ago when people were shutting off Roma on Netflix after like 25 minutes. And it's like um, when a movie that like that, that is not, you know, quote unquote challenging, but is more poetic and has, you know, right. operates moves to slower rhythms than they're used to. If they can't even stick through that for two hours and change, well then, you know, what hope does, I don't know, I was at home, but have, you know, another one of my favorite movies this year. So it was an interesting chance to kind of dive into that. And I know it's, it's hard. These are not easy movies to watch necessarily under the best of circumstances, but you need those best circumstances really to, I think, for them to have their full power and effect. It's so hard to, you know, have the, the, the presence of mind and, mm-hmm. and the kind of enforced conditions that a movie theater gives you um, that you end up appreciating when it's a movie you really need to, to sit with uh, in, in the darkness, the, you know, the old alone together sort, sort of thing yeah. you know, with the movie. And it is hard for movies like that to get attention in, in the best of times. I was just trying to think, you know, what movies were people talking about or were somehow you know, the movies of the moment for, and and it's hard, you know, because to have that kind of conversation, things feel so diffuse now. Um, And I mean, I guess the kind of second life of first cow was maybe one thing that people, you know, uh, happily, I guess, you know, it, it wasn't, wasn't, wasn't completely lost. I mean, maybe there needs to be a second life for, for Baccarat too, since that was right around the same time. And then before that, I guess, it's sort of an analogous to what happens with theaters, which is, well, it was the movie that was out there to the most number of people instantly, which is probably two Netflix movies. I mean, I'd have to say that like the old guard and um, before that defy bloods, those were two, the two other two movies that kind of somehow broke through in the most general way. Obviously these are, these are movies that were anticipated in filmmakers that in, in different ways were, were curious about, but also a bit was like brute force numbers, <laughs> you know, just as it was, would be for like a really wide summer release of, of something. I mean, on top of everything, I think we should all just give ourselves a pass too if we miss things because we all have, you know, big, bigger things on, on our minds. I'm sure everyone listening than than what what the movie of, of, of the week is. It's very true, and you know, I, I reviewed 
both of those films, but it's funny how it's this weird feeling of scarcity where there are technically, you know, fewer movies and yet you also feel more behind than ever. And, (laughs) um, and it's interesting with both quickly, you know, with both the Spike Lee movie and um, uh, Gina Prince by the wood uh, with the old guard with, you know, with some reservations about both, but I, I liked both those films and I watched them. It was, it's a weird thing too, when you're watching, them at home on Netflix and you're watching a movie for review for the first time. And of course, you know, I, I try not to review off a screener. I only do that usually if I've seen the movie previously at a screening, but now of course we don't have that luxury. So, and I just remember being struck by, you know, when watching the five bloods, it's like, Oh, this, you know, the cinematography looks pretty great. Actually, especially the, the, the flashback stuff, you know, with the altered aspect ratio. It's like, God, I really wish I was watching this in the theater. And with the old guard, there are certain moments in that movie that, including one between the the, the scene and so many people are talking about, which is the kiss between Marwan Marwan Kenzari, sorry, and uh, Luca Marinelli, um, who play lovers in their you know, and they're among these immortal warriors in that movie, and they have this this there's this passionate declaration of love that passes between them, and you know, it's it's groundbreaking you know it's, it feels radical in the context mm-hmm. of a comic book superhero movie because it's this expression of love between two men and it's like it's it's a moment you want to kind of pump your fist at and i actually wish i'd seen that in a packed house you know so even these movies which are you know maybe their their product maybe but they're interesting product yeah it's just weird it's also just weird being able to <laughs> pause and rewind things for the first time um as you're going through and you try to resist that urge you try to shut everything out you try to duplicate the uh conditions of a proper screening as best you can but god we know it's hard so yeah <laughs> but yeah yeah you're totally right i mean to to feel how an audience yeah. would move through that and kind of encounter that that would be yeah, that's yeah. part of the feeling of loss totally. <laughs> that that one has about about this moment. But I mean, one thing that does happen is that I mean, I'm often thinking about these these times. Well, I guess I was already thinking about you know whatever the internet infused <laughs> past couple of decades as being this kind of eternal present. But I didn't really I didn't really know <laughs> you know yeah. how eternal that present would be, and, or how that would feel even more intense in some ways now. And what happens now is that I'm seeing things right next to each other. You know, everything is, is, is just yeah. seems to be happening all at once. So I'm seeing really strange combinations of, of movies. And I'm, and I'm sure you're right, too, because I asked what movies you might want to talk about on the podcast. And the list was just pretty glorious, I have to say. Because oh <laughs> it's like a mix of new releases and, then, and classics and then different kinds of new, newer movies. Well, maybe we can start with the, the Benwell movie a little bit. Viridiana. Um, yeah. Because that's a movie that I saw fairly re- recently, but before that, I have to say, like year years ago, in, I mean, must have been in college, in the sense where there was a monument. You know, this is something you have to see. Yeah. You have to see. I think it's on the Ebert list, which no shame. I, I, I love that list. But <laughs> to, when I watched it more recently, I felt like I was taller. You know, so I was seeing it more eye to eye a little. That was interesting. How how did it how did it strike you when when you saw it? 
Yeah, well, I'll own up myself. It's like, this was my first time seeing it. I had never seen Verdiana, which it always felt, you know, and God knows there's monuments that I've missed. Um, and this is one of them. And, you know, Criterion Channel has like a great um, Bunwell selection. And this was in the mix. I was like, oh my God, how have I never seen his, this Palm d'Or winning film that, uh, of course, I knew the backstory and just that this was one of his great scandals and was was banned for many years in Spain. And it's, you know, a, you know it's a very irreverent film about religion, among other things. And that is one of those things that's kind of kind of in my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. I'm always just really interested in religion on film and in a way, you know, seen both irreverently and reverently as it happens. But so this was like a long time coming for sure. And no, I mean, I loved it. I feel like it's funny. I was having this conversation with a friend recently and they said that they felt that Bunuel's movies were, there's something weirdly... Not that he'd fallen out of fashion, but that he wasn't so quick on people's tongues necessarily as much when people think about the great filmmakers. And I don't know why that is, but maybe it's partly because his he has such a such a mischievous and kind of a gossamer touch where it, it's really complicated. It's very deft and dexterous, and it's almost like the movie and what he's saying and the the sort of the jabs that he's throwing and the points he's making are so sort of fluid and delicate that they could almost like slip through your fingers. Mm -hmm. It's just been funny to think like, I think right now, especially in this time of quarantine, a lot of, I don't know, I've just heard or seen people like a lot of people are watching Bergman movies, you know, especially Bergman movies that like really seem to fit the moment, like whether that's shame or the sense of uh, confinement that we're in, which kind of lends itself to Bergman if you're watching Cries and Whispers, whatever, you know. Scenes from, scenes from a marriage, depending on. <laughs> from, yes, absolutely. Scenes from marriage, which... Which is going to be remade now, oh, I, I hear. You know, which uh, there's that I know um, with 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 good actors, but we'll we'll see. Yeah, I, I've had the same experience yeah. of, of watching the the old masters, and, and it's like, oh yeah, there, there's a reason for this. For sure. um, and with Benwell, I, I I have the same sense. I mean, I, it might be a little bit like a European American thing. I feel like he still looms yeah. large a, a bit there here. I mean, yes. I don't know. It's hard to generalize. But one thing is is the, the institutions that he's often uh, prominent in the movie, like the Catholic Church, right. are for viewers today, they might feel like yesterday's target for someone who is making mischief. Now, if you think of things that are, that are, are trying to shock, it's it's less centered on, on organized religion to, to, to a large extent. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that might be one reason why he's not as prominent. But then you watch them, and especially with a movie like this, which again... The, the log line. I like the idea of a log line for a well movie. <laughs> but the I mean of just, you know, uh, you know, a nun who's at a convent is going to visit her uncle who has provided funding for her um, just to say thanks, but she has really no emotional connection with him, so it's awkward. And then mm -hmm. it gets progressively stranger as he as he turns out to often pretty offhandedly be extraordinarily uber creepy. Um, and, and, and beyond that, and then, you know, the movie then kind of veers into like class, co class commentary that then kind of had me made, th made me think of a parasite a little as well. Um, totally. and, and then, you know, when all of that's running, you're like, wow, this is still quite shocking, quite unsettling. And again, I'm kind of going on about this, but like seeing this now as, as more of uh, I think I've said this phrase on this podcast before, so I feel bad. But it's more like a thinking adult. I understand even more how it's how how mm -hmm. it's shocking, how wrong things are, and how there comes a point where sometimes what Bunuel was doing as surrealism, not necessarily in this movie, actually comes to feel like 
offhanded realism. I don't know if that makes sense. Totally. The kind of juxtapositions in life and these strange injustices and contradictions of daily life and the way we patch together our sense yeah. of morality, you realize, you know, maybe it's not as outlandish as it, as, as it might seem. Yeah, it's like things are just sort of tweaked or even torqued mm. ever so slightly. But there is a real coherent logic. I mean, when people think of, you know, you think well and you think surrealism and you think his Dali inspired influenced work you know but really it's like he operates in this real in-between zone I think you know both kind of structurally and, and morally too and that's what makes him so kind of liquid and hard to pin down I'm glad you mentioned Parasite because I think that Bong Joon-ho is someone who is totally indebted to Bunwell and that movie is very Bunwellian um, in a lot of ways and in ways that I almost hope would you know encourage people to watch you know it's kind of in the Bunuel and Chabral school of sort of kind of domestic satire and you know another director who kind of um I don't want to like stamp them as saying they've fallen out of fashion but maybe just are not getting quite the attention that they still deserve it's interesting to think about this in the context of of Cannes and festivals and and having missed out that on that experience because I mean I can't remember i you know, I know that this movie was, of course, shocking to many, including the institutions that it depicted, but I can't remember what the reception was like at Cannes. Um, and I say I can't remember because I was not there, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, I was not, but I don't remember, like, in terms of reading about it, I, I can't remember if this set off shockwaves at the festival itself. But then, you know, you read that, like, La Ventura caught, was booed and, you know, sent people out of the theater in disgust. And you look at that now from the standpoint of uh, 2020 or even 2010 or whatever, and you think, oh, that seems kind of quaint and odd, you know, it was, you know, one of, not only just because it's one of the great films, but also, gosh, I mean, that people were so angry or looking further back, you know, when, like, Jean Renoir's Rules of the Game, you know, caused rioting and, and you know, in, at its first screenings. And you know, it's just partly it's just having to sort of, of course, adjust your mindset to the the tenor of the time and the attitudes and just the cultural context of the time. And that's part of the, the work you do of understanding the movie then. But, it, you know, of course, you wish you were there to see the impact that they yeah. had. And so something like Verdiana, which... Um, is not shocking in the sense that it's showing you things that, you know, it's not shocking in the way of like a, a Lars von Trier movie or a, a Gaspar Noé movie or the things that we think about as like festival scandals and specifically can scandals now, you know, it's much more restrained than, than that. And he's not a, you know, he's not, he's not a shock maestro or anything, yeah. but it's almost the casual offhandedness of it. And just that very, of course, non-judgmental comedy that is really quite horrifying too. Um, and this depiction of a society or cross-section of society um, that just is sort of beyond salvation and beyond the reach of you know, virtue, no matter how much we might try to impose that on them or on ourselves. Yeah, yeah so, absolutely. I mean, yeah. and then that, that extends to, uh, you know, at one point the, uh, the nun Viviriana is is take, taking in yeah. the poor, um, you know this kind of eminently, you know, noble action. But it doesn't really, you know, it becomes more like, uh, you know, voodoo saved by drowning or something <laughs> in terms yeah. of how how it plays yes. out. And you know, that's yeah, yeah he's been well just refusing that there's going to be an inherent nobility to, to the way people people act or, or react Absolutely. to charity. It was also interesting, the idea of dignity, you know, one of them protests like, oh, this is, you know, it talks about his dignity. And so that it's, but it's, it's not for our, our sake, you know, they're not going to perform dignity for our sake, for us to feel better about how right. we're watching it. Um, and that just that this all is happening in, in, in one movie. But it's interesting what you were also saying 
about wanting to be there at the moment something was screened just to to, to, to see what, what was yeah. what was the big deal and, and, and that. I had that moment um, when I watched uh, a Maurice PLA movie a, a few weeks ago, Under the Sun of Satan. Oh yes. Which yeah. um, thankfully this is actually on YouTube. You can you can look up PLA right. accepting the prize and just kind of giving as good as he got, basically. Um, <laughs> and and you and you watch it and that's one where there's like a hole in the soul of that movie where you can you can imagine people not even wanting to allow it in into their yeah. mind or their or the heart because of just the bleakness of, of it. One of the all-time kind of disaster receptions <laughs> yeah. and, and stunning display of uh, just yeah defiance on the on yeah the yeah <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Um, that brings me a little bit to another movie you, you mentioned you'd seen because I think it oh, is yeah. a movie that maybe is well is is shocking for viewers and 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 is for trying sure. to get across. Um, the idea of atrocity in many ways, um, and, and and not actually not just the idea, but the actual awful lived experience of it, uh, and that's um, the painted bird. Oh, and this we should just mention this movie is now is a new release. Basically, this this yes. is available now. This is a new release. I think um, it's a, it's on it's an IFC Films release, so uh, you can find it through um, the IFC website among other places. I'm sure. Yeah, this is a movie that first premiered uh, in competition at the Venice Film Festival and also at Toronto. And I think, Nick, that was where you saw it um, at, at Venice uh, last year. I did not see it there. The movie's quite long. It's almost three hours. And while, you know, long films at f- festivals are nothing new, it was a case where I just, I couldn't make it um, for that. For And I, you know, and I actually wanted to see this. I mean, for all the the word about how shocking and how graphic and how uh, just harrowing it was. Um, you know, those are, I'm not saying it gave me an appetite for it, but it was like, I'm, you know, you, when, when something, when noise is being made, you want to see where it's coming from and what, it, what it's all about. I didn't get to see it. I really wish I had, because the movie is, you know, beautifully shot um, in black and white. Um, and the beauty of it sort of exists in very, strange counterpoint and tension to the ugliness of what the story is. This is based on uh, uh, Jerzy Kozinski's um, very famous and somewhat controversial novel um, about a young boy's experiences during World War II. And he is just basically uh, sent away by his parents to live with uh, someone and he winds up being adrift and basically just wanders from one horrific horrific situation to the next um, where he is either enduring hellish atrocities or witnessing hellish atrocities. And that is basically the structure of the film. So I watched this, I I reviewed it. And uh, when it was finally released uh, recently and I watched it at home. Um, And so, as I was saying earlier, you know, I had the freedom to sort of pause and catch my breath when I needed to, and to not sort of take it all in one go, you know, I, and I, I, at the same time, you know, I wish I do wish I'd seen it in the theater because I do think that a film like this depends on its power for more than even some movies just feeling imprisoned, right? Feeling like you you mean you can you can move, you can leave and you can leave the theater if you want and for some people would consider that to be a, a perfectly maybe even a the preferable thing to do um is just to walk out, but I think if you're going to watch it it's like you want the whole experience and you want the full visual impact and I have to say, you know, I had very mixed a very mixed reaction to the film. I actually don't. I mean, it's it's horrifying to watch, but it wasn't like it's far from you know the most scarring thing I've seen. And that's partly because 
it's very oblique, actually, in what it shows you, you know, I mean, it's never pleasant, but it's not, um, you know, it's the black and white distances you a little bit, some of the violence is much more implied than it is actually shown. So, but it's just, it's just more harder to take on just a spiritual level of anything, right? So um, at the same time, I felt like, in a way, it did feel like button pushing to me at a certain point it felt and i know it's very you know faithful to to the book and the progression of the book but you know the book also has the gift of its language and the movie i think tries to reproduce some of that language in in poetic fashion but it's it's just too um it's maybe supposed to meant to feel like a grind but it feels like a grind in maybe the wrong Mm, way yeah (laughs) where it feels almost like you're you're kind of bumping up not against so much the the absolute unimaginable horror of what you're seeing and just you're kind of more bumping up against the limits of the filmmakers i don't know imagination or whatnot yeah yeah i know what you mean i mean it, it there's just something um a little too meticulous <laughs> about you know totally. the way it yeah. is, assembles and lines up one thing after, after another i mean this is a movie that's doing something different and is at a different time but the tin drum came to mind as a movie that is is also dazzling is is also tapping some pretty you know rough periods in history the painted bird is like a movie that's managed to create these spectacular scenes and setups but yeah i i I know what you mean you know it came to mind again a little when i when i watched this new criterion disc of come and see because Mm -hmm. that's another movie that is just you know avowedly putting you through the ringer um, you know, it's pretty open <laughs> about it, but it's just, if I had to watch one movie that's going to destroy my, my spirit, it would be come and see. <laughs> totally. Well, and it's, it's very, I mean, I feel like the movie is absolutely indebted to come and see and is trying to, I'm not saying it's trying to be that movie, but it's absolutely one of its touchstones. And I'm so glad you mentioned it because a few months ago, I one of the maybe one of the last movies I saw in a theater was Come oh, and no. See. Um, when it when yeah when it, in, a, in a packed house at the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica, um, the American the American Cinematheque programmed it, and I had never watched. I had always you know always known about this movie. Talk about a monument, right? And I had always it was one that I'd always wanted to wait to watch when it came on the big screen, which it did every so often, you know, and hopefully will again when we are back in theaters, but. It was so just stunning to see that movie in a in a packed house with an audience that, you know, kind of, you know, knew what they were in for and did not walk out um, and was totally held wrapped by it. And it's just I mean, it's worth doing, you know, a close (laughs) side by side study. And I'm not going to do that right now, of course. But it's funny how both can be are, you know, can be described as sort of soul killing experiences. But with Come and See, there's just some other qual- and this is uh, Klimov's uh, genius, right? I mean, he's just infused that experience with something where it doesn't feel like this systematic, meticulously choreographed gauntlet of pain. Mm. It's it actually does feel like this powerfully immersive experience where you're just from end to end, you're just being swept up in this tumult of action that is very human and very raw and and yes actually really brilliantly choreographed but it never feels like just a you know a, a meticulously plotted spectacle another director i kind of <laughs> i kept thinking about like bellatar mm-hmm. for some reason i mean almost as a contrast because they're not similar at all i mean you know i'm not trying drawing trying to draw a facile comparison just because they're black and white you know experiences of of kind of and very downbeat but it was kind of on my mind because i had actually seen uh satan tango last oh, wow. fall also uh-huh. in a theater yeah because that was um also the, the cinematheque and so the, I, these experiences really spoke to me recently because these were some of the last kind of great 
repertory cinema going experiences that I've had recently. And with Saint Tango, I was always, you know, it's much long, you know, it's twice as more than twice as long as as um, the Painted Bird, but in a, in a similar fashion, not an easy experience. Also, just less shocking. If there's no kind of attempt at shock value at all in right. that film, I don't find that movie punishing. I find it beautiful and just really absorbing. But if you're talking about really bleak films, I feel like there's some quality where like a director like Bellatar is showing you th- something that it's not just rubbing your nose. And it's like, he's actually trying to capture kind of like the life of a place, you know, um, and to get you to like kind of approximate the rhythms of how, you know, life in this muddy, what rain soaked apocalyptic kind of environment is like, he's trying to convey some sense of that texture. And with the painted bird, I just found it ultimately a little too pristine, and a little bit too, yeah, just really deterministic in terms of every like shot feels kind of calculated to what is the most possibly shocking or just horrifying kind of angle on this experience we could give you. And we'll get to that. Yeah. So in a way, it's, it's almost a little, and I wrote this when I was writing about it, I, I feel like it's a little too easy. You know, I mean, as difficult a movie as it is, it's a little, there's something a little too easy about it. And I feel like in a weird way, the fact that you have well-known actors like Barry Pepper and Udo Kier, you know, because how could Udo Kier not pop up in a movie like this, of course? <laughs> right. It's like, in a weird way, it offers you kind of like a, a relief. It's like a kind of like a, like a little lifeboat or something right. like, oh, here's some, you know, here's some faces you recognize, but it also kind of pulls you out of the movie. So, yeah, and I don't, I don't want to bash the movie too much because I do think it's, I'm not upset that i saw it i'm not you know i in fact i'm, I'm kind of glad i did um but uh i think it's a really interesting failure yeah yeah you know? no i yeah. mean it's yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely swinging for the fences uh on <laughs> on, on that for sure. yeah. absolutely and admi- you admire that impulse for sure. For sure. yeah um yeah Geez, I feel like we need to take a, a breath here. <laughs> something, something light, and and this is where I, 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 again, I'm very happy about the about the movies you've been watching. I think you know where I'm going with this now. <laughs> I do, I do. I think this is going to be quite the cognitive dissonance for some of our right. listeners. Um, uh, yeah. but, but thanks to the uh, the, the pairing of, of, of summer movies that you've been doing at the, uh, at the times, yeah, um, you've been going through summer movies and pitting them against against each other, and so. Because recently you've seen Clueless, yeah, and from the painted bird Clueless, <laughs> yes. Clueless. Um, this is and it's funny because this has been the series that I've been doing, and I don't want to talk too much about it. If people people can jump over to my Twitter account if they want to learn more about it, because it's just been dominating my social media presence. This was a, a thing that the LA Times and my colleagues on the film team cooked up. This was not my idea either, but I'm but you know it's I don't mean to like dismiss it either. It's been really fun. Um, where we look back at all the summer movies since Jaws and we go week by week timing it to release date. So, you know, Clueless just turned 25, you know, it's 25th anniversary of that movie. And in fact, the first and last time I'd seen it before this week was actually back in theaters in, in the summer of 1995. Yeah, and so, um, yeah, and so it was a real pleasure to revisit. And this whole series, I will just say this whole series has been fun because for a lot of people, it's it's a nostalgia trip and that was the series was kind of conceived at a time when there are not new summer movies it was an idea to totally <laughs> exploit people's nostalgia and give them you know and give them the pleasure of revisiting some of their favorites and as we kind of seek set out to curate this idea of what does the ultimate summer movie season look like if you were to program it from mm-hmm. end to end you know um going picking some of the best movies from each week but uh, for me, I have to say, as someone who, you know, saw, yeah, I went to the movies growing up, you know, as most of us <laughs> did, but it's like, but I was not like a junkie. I was definitely not like a blockbuster junkie. So a lot of these things, I don't necessarily, I won't necessarily say which ones, but a lot of these were actually my first time seeing them, you know, or either that or my memory of seeing them was just so 
faint that I, I might as well not have seen them to begin with. But yeah, with Clueless, it's this one actually, it's funny. And one of the reasons I, I, it was a pleasure to visit and I liked the movie so much is um, even though I had not seen it in 25 years and so much of it felt very familiar to me, like, oh my God, I completely remember, you know, that that line or that line reading. I mean, part, partly this is just because so many of the lines and the costumes and, you know, the, you know, and Alicia Silverstone and, and the late Brittany Murphy and, and just so much of it is the iconography of this movie has just entered popular culture. So that is no surprise that it feels very recognizable, but it was nice to see how well I think it holds up. Uh, I don't know, Nick. Have you seen this one I recently? I have not, have you, but I tell you, been a part of your no, life. But I tell you now, I, this is. It's, I do want to. It's on Netflix, so yeah, anyone can you know. Yeah, very I'm, I'm going to be look, looking it up, looking it up. Um, and, and we do own the soundtrack. It's a part of the, the part, part of, of that part of the home. Part of part <laughs> yeah. of the home. I think it'll be the same for me. It's, it hasn't been something I've revisited in a while. But well, a I'm going to probably going to have the experience a lot of people have, and this is. Um, something a couple of friends of mine often talk about, but you watch a movie from the nineties and you're just like, Oh wow, this is, looks beautiful. <laughs> yeah. um, this, you know, the, it's, it's, it's on film, the attention to, to costume and production design, you know, even just to the level of the screenwriting. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not, this is, I'm not going to like damn, a, a, you know, a whole swath of like industrial product right now. Yeah, no, I don't think you're wrong to say that at all. I mean, I, I actually had, you actually, put your finger on something that was sort of percolating in my head as I watched it. And as I've watched a lot of this, you know, it's been interesting to see trends. You learn like how a lot of the names that were kind of like, you know, whether it's like Jerry Zucker or, you know, or just the big names that were circulating in like action movies and comedies during this time, you know, in earlier days of like the summer box office season and things look different. And the attention to the camera work, um, the lighting, mm. even watching, you know, it's on Netflix, it's like, oh, this is actually, these shots are really nicely lit and it's, it's very sharp and clear. And it, you can tell, you can tell that it was shot on film and just, you know, the week in, week out of a lot of, you know, or day in, day out of daily reviewing of Hollywood product, you do, I, I don't know, I've asked colleagues about this, just, does everything just kind of look like shit to you? You know, <laughs> I, I, you know, and, you know, not every, and every, every once in a while, and this is why, you know, when, you know, when the fall comes along and then the, the studios and the specialty distributors start putting out movies that have clearly been made with a little bit more visual care, if nothing else. And you feel like, oh, thank God. But it's like, why are so many just, comedies so aesthetically just so indifferent you know i mean i know even if they're trying to be sort of you know rough and tumble it's like yeah but can't things be in focus or can't things be you know like, yeah. and, you know look, just be well lit and not just that really grubby low-grade digital look that we're seeing now um because everything is shot digitally now and so something like clueless which you know it's funny too. Legally Blonde was in the mix too, and my wife and I rewatched. Re- re- oh yeah, Blonde. i watched um, that early in yeah, quarantine for, for some reason <laughs> It's you know it's very you know very you know it's very entertaining and and it's and also you know these movies which you know are about you know Reese Witherspoon in Legally Blonde and Alicia Silverstone in Clueless you know women who are just complete the way their lives are designed and the way their wardrobe is you know it's just there's just a lot of visual and aesthetic pleasure in these movies and um, clearly a lot of just care in the production and the costume design and it does feel and you know Legally Blonde was uh, was it two thousand two or something or early 2000s it's like you think like oh that wasn't that long ago and it's like even then things look different I mean you watch it 
and it looks older for sure. You can tell that it's, you know, it's not that it's dated, but it just, it, it looks a little older, but it also looks better than I think what kind of the industrial standard is now. And that's, I, that's, that's, I know we're speaking in generalizations, but that was something that struck me very, very much. Yeah. Um, it was also interesting to watch Clueless again after having had another uh, more straight adaptation of Emma by Autumn DeWilde a few months ago. Uh, a movie that I also enjoyed. And um, it's funny because when I first saw Clueless, I think I was I was like 12 years old. So I had not read Emma and I had no idea that it had anything to do with Jane Austen. <laughs> so um, that, uh, and when people would just get growing older, when people would describe in those terms, I would be like, Oh, and I, I did read Emma, and I got around to that, um, and so I was like, "Oh!" But I hadn't—I didn't go back to rewatch Clueless until like this mm-hmm. past week. So it was kind of like, a, "Oh yeah, everything clicks now." And it's funny because in terms of Emma is such a well-constructed novel, and, and I mean Jane Austen was just such a great constructor of plot. You know, people talk about just you know her great observations as a social satirist, and as you know, and the, just the, you know, and just her attentiveness to all that. But she was also just really good at plotting. They're like detective novels, you know, um, in terms of how well plotted they are. And it was very cool to see, like, how much sort of um, Amy Heckerling does that, you know, because the movie is full of red herrings. I mean, that's the whole idea. It's like, it's as she realizes how little she, how clueless she is about everything and the way she sort of lays those traps, you know, in, in a kind of more insouciant bubblegum pop kind of fashion. But it's still, I think, the principles of Austin's fiction are very much there. So, yeah. That's, that's the uh, strange 90s Jane Austen boom. Um, <laughs> yes, right. I know, and it came. Did it come out the same year as the Gwyneth Paltrow Emma? Um, yeah, yeah, I think it yeah. did. I think it did. So, and I and I do recall. I think you know, looking back, I kind of people were people very much preferred Clueless to the so-called real right. real, you know. So, which um, which is kind of cool to think about. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, but it's like you, you know, it's as you say. I like to think of screenwriters saying, "Actually, this is this works pretty well. I think I'm going <laughs> to use going to use this." You know? <laughs> <laughs> why why try to reinvent the wheel you know just right. uh, update i mean i mean it's, no you're right i mean because it's funny because now of course jane austen has become just you know this cottage industry unto herself even more so i think since the 90s um mm. she has you know decidedly not fallen out of fashion um and so then in a way it's almost like clueless actually feels maybe a little ahead of the curve almost or at least ahead of that particular curve you know um because i think you know, like the idea of like a an updated Jane Austen, you know, for, for the aughts or something is no longer such a bold or surprising idea, you know? Um, I, I'll, I, just so it doesn't sound like we're dumping on an entire uh, generation of comedies. <laughs> I will mention that, that I watched Palm Springs um, yeah. this week, which is a very handsome, yes. very handsome looking, sharply written and, and constructed R-rated Groundhog Day for another generation. <laughs> Basically, I was perfectly happy with it. I, yeah. I, I wish I wish it got even loonier in, in in what they did with their version of immortality. Yes, but uh, yeah, Palm Springs. I, I was happy to spend some time there. <laughs> I was too, and it's it's funny. Like yeah, and you know that independent movie that premiered at Sundance. In a way, it's like some of that more care has been clearly been taken with that film than maybe some things coming out of studios. But no, it's it's it, it looks great and. I found it really just amusing now that when, with any of these high concept comedy formulations, whether it's, you know, body swapping or, you know, Groundhog Day, uh, Eternal Time Loop, that these genres, as they become more sophisticated and as audiences become more sophisticated or at least more used to them, that these movies can 
become very self-reflexive and very kind of breezy about the conventions in a way like, you know, you know we don't have to explain what's going on. You know, we can, kind of, it's, it's funny, but it's, it's, and I think it's both in some ways a good thing and maybe a drawback at the same time. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, it's just true. But I, I enjoyed it too. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if I can prevail on you for just a little longer, I'm, I'm just curious to hear about another, another new movie you saw was at one point going to be, part of a batch of horror films in July by female filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think one of them got moved. Yeah. Originally you had St. Maud was coming out right. mm-hmm. in July and then Amulet. That's right. Which yeah. did come out. And then the third, which is, which is the one you mentioned you saw relic. What did you think of relic? I liked it quite a bit. Um, and and I've seen all three of those, and I think this is my favorite of the three. Um, okay. Yeah, um, and I, you know, I, I like things about all the others too. But um, and this one, I caught up with. You know, a little. It's been out for a couple of weeks. I caught up with it late. I had maybe the best viewing circumstances because you know I'd put the child to bed. My wife had gone to bed, so and I was like, you know, it was like ten or eleven p.m. and I was like, I oh, do some work. I think I'll watch Relic. So I turned off all the lights and I rented it on Amazon. Um, and I just, and I put on my headphones. So it's just like, what you should do if you're watching a horror movie at home, <laughs> you know, by yourself in the dark. <laughs> and this is, yes, this is the debut feature of Natalie Erica James, who's um, a Japanese Australian filmmaker, very talented. And it stars Emily Mortimer and uh, Bella Heathcote and Robin Nevin. Uh, they play basically three generations of women, like the, a grandmother, a mother, a daughter not respectively, because I listed them in the wrong order. Um, but they are who are all brought together under the same roof. Um, and I'll, I think I'll leave the summary at that. I was just really refreshed by how, you know, this is a very slow burn movie. There is some, you know, very nifty kind of effects work, but unlike, say, Amulet, which I, I also like, but that movie's like a total kind of tons of gore, tons of Cronenbergian, Guillermo del Toro kind of uh, <laughs> viscera that's being thrown at you. And it's, it's you know, it's very, it's very good viscera, but um, Relic <laughs> is much more metaphorical in, this, in the way, in its approach. Um, it's about grief. It's about watching the parent, in this case, a mother grow old and lose her mind and her memory and the grandmother who's enduring that is played by robin nevin and it's it's very simple in some ways this movie and it's probably that simplicity that allows it to i think get somewhere that's very moving in the end there's this one scene where the two younger women are wandering through this house the grandmother's house and the house keeps kind of like shifting around them like this labyrinth in a way and it basically is like the house is sort of mimicking like the slip of the older woman's mind and her memory. It's, so it's like, it's actually this interesting representation of what like dementia does to a mind or to a house, you know, where mm. nothing is concrete anymore. And so it's, it's a very creepy and well choreographed and executed and complex scene, but it just also works on this really just very basic and simple metaphorical level. And it, it builds this ending scene that is just really, really heartbreaking, but also consoling at the same time. Emily Mortimer, who's a great actress who I don't think gets nearly enough credit, um, is really good in this. And it's a surprisingly lovely horror film, I have to say. You know, I mean, mm. it's, it definitely creeped me out. I mean, there were times where I was like, oh, God, I don't want to make that trip up the stairs to bed in the dark <laughs> by myself. But the lasting impression it gave me is that, oh, it's it's really beautiful and, and quite moving. So, yeah. yeah. 
good time for uh, for like maximum power of housebound movies. Absolutely. <laughs> Housebound, haunted house stuff. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we can bring this in for a finish now. Thanks for thanks for coming around wherever we are in the in the ether right now. <laughs> um, what's next for you? Are you do you already have a? I mean, you know, I guess Venice and Toronto are going to be starting up soon. Yes. Presumably, we'll do some remote coverage. But uh, yeah, for now, otherwise, it's really thin and. Uh, Hope that changes soon. Hope changes yeah. for the better. We're just uh, just all trying to hold on for a few more months until our situation might change. Hopefully, yeah, but yeah, yeah. So it's a work in progress. Very much so. Well, <laughs> uh, all right. Well, thanks, thanks, Justin, again, and uh, come back anytime. Oh gosh. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Ask me anytime. No, it's, okay. it's always such a pleasure to talk to you, really. And I am so glad you're doing this. 